This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's guest is Jenny Johnson, MBE, who's a childcare entrepreneur of the last 20 years. Now, with two children under the age of three and a third on the way, I was particularly interested in what she's doing with her new company, My First Five Years. It's an app which helps children and parents navigate the modern world of parenting. They also have a podcast called My First Five Years, and I have listened to a lot of parenting podcasts. And honestly, it is one of the best ones that I've ever come across. It's really worth checking out. And I'll be appearing on Jenny's show at some point in the autumn as well. Jenny, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you for asking me, Jimmy. I'm excited to be here. What led to you setting up Kids Allowed? Really simply, I couldn't find childcare for my own child. So um, because of that, I tried to make do amend with friends and family. Um, and that didn't work out particularly well. And one day, um, true story, I nearly missed um, the train to London because my childcare had fallen through that day, my informal childcare. And um, when I, I think I was the last person to board the train to London that day. And I actually thought I might have died from stress. I think if they'd had a heart monitor on me, they might have decided that I had clinically died. Um, and I sat on the train and I thought, this is just ridiculous. I'm trying to work full time. My childcare arrangements are a mess. And that was what was causing the drama in my life. And I sat there within five minutes of, of boarding the train and realized that what would fix my life was high quality childcare. And by the end of the train journey, I'd come up with the name, Kids Allowed. Um, I'd listed all the services that I thought an amazing childcare provider should have. I got home that day, registered the name and quit my job the next day. And honestly, that is what happened. Amazing. <laughs> and, well, set about, <laughs> and set about trying to deliver the dream that was um, an amazing experience for children. And what, what, what was your job before? What were you doing? So I was a sales director and, um, you know, worked full time um, in IT and yeah, really full on job um, where I had to sort of get to work, focus. It wasn't a nine to five by any means. Mm. Um, so you can imagine juggling all the balls that, you know, full time working parents do. Um, it was a challenge and I knew that the thing that could really, really help me was knowing that my daughter was having an amazing day so that I could focus on my career. And Talk to us, because you you scaled it into a pretty big business, like 500 people at, at its maximum. What was it like working in the childcare sector going from sales? Well, the thing is that I always, so when I decided that I was going to um, leave my job and set up Kids Allowed, it was to do it at scale. So I quit a six-figure salary job and, and I was looking to create something quite special. And when I set 
out at the beginning, it was to open nine centres throughout the northwest of England. And when I sold the business 18 years later, I'd opened eight and there was a ninth on the way, but I didn't quite get to open it myself. Um, and you know what? Running a childcare business is not for the faint-hearted at all. It's so many moving parts. You're um, regulated by Ofsted. And, you know, if you know any teachers, they tend not to have much of a good word to say for Ofsted. They're a bit of a law unto their own. So we had really heavy-handed regulators in Ofsted. But then I think what people don't appreciate about running a childcare company is that you're also... Um, in, in our case, we had 2,000 children attending every week. So we were a 2,000 cover restaurant across eight sites, um, is one way to look at it, preparing fresh food every day for all the different allergies and intolerances that you can think of. So that in itself is complex. And then we also had a fleet of 17 minibuses across all the centres. So we were a licensed taxi firm as well, with all the legislation involved in running a licensed taxi firm. So I honestly can't think of much more of a complicated business to run. And you're looking after people's children, and that is a massive responsibility. Um, so I think it's fair to say I didn't have a good night's sleep for 18 years. What did you most enjoy about it? I got a massive buzz from two, well, three things actually. Walking the floor and seeing children having a fabulous day. So that was the centre of everything. And in fact, our little motto was making children happy. And that was what it was all about, was that we wanted to see and often did see kids literally skipping in the place to spend the day there. Um, chatting to parents is another big high when you listen to the impact that you know, delivering this exceptional service for children has on parents and the wonderful feedback that we got from almost all the parents. I'm not trying to say that we never had a complaint ever, but, you know, we had really happy customers. And then my really big buzz was the 500 plus colleagues that worked for Kids Aloud and the fact that they too um, loved working for the company and that we'd created an environment where people enjoyed coming to work could flourish, could feel appreciated and valued. And I think the combination of the happy kids, the happy colleagues, the happy parents, for me, I got a massive buzz out of that. Why is childcare so expensive though? I mean, it's become in the last 20 years now one of the kind of big hot political topics. And why do you yep. think it has just got so much more expensive? It really is all about... Um, staffing ratios and they're high and rightly so you know to look after um, babies you're on a one to three ratio one colleague to look after three children and it's expensive and and interestingly um I'm a Salford girl and when I set up Kids Aloud my original motto was affordable childcare for all and I couldn't deliver it when I wrote the business plan it's not possible because if you want to pay decent wages so we paid real living wages um, if you want to pay decent wages and you do your spreadsheet, you, the calculations come out at the end that the childcare is going to be expensive. So for me to round the circle, I had to open in what I call pockets of wealth. So kids allowed, you know, it was in places like Knutsford and Didsbury and places where people could afford to pay the higher fees. And that didn't sit well with me as a Salford girl. You know, I couldn't open um, one of my settings in, in, a, in the area that I grew up in because the price point for childcare in that area just wouldn't have, wouldn't have washed. But for me, I justified that, that I really looked after the team and that the team had better wages at Kids Allowed than they'd have had anywhere else in the sector. So that was where I did my good stuff. 
well, childcare is expensive because it's underfunded. Um, you know, the government sort of um, announces these sort of 30 free hours, but they don't pay the providers enough. So there's a lot of sort of unhappiness between customers' expectations that they can get something for free, providers' expectations that they can't make the maths work unless parents pay extra. Um, yeah, something radically needs to change in the sector. I completely agree. And what were your sort of reflections on maintaining a happy workforce and how did you do that? Because it is notorious for having quite high turnover, et cetera. So how did you mm-hmm. look to tackle that? Yeah, it is notorious for that. And we did really, really well on it. We had really low staff turnover and never once used agency staff in the entire 18 years I ran the business, which again, if you speak to most um, group providers, they'll tell you that they're constantly battling low staff numbers. I think there's a number of things that I did. We had slightly more staff than we needed to have for the legislation, which gave everybody a bit of breathing space. Um, we really focused in on listening to colleagues. So I used to do this thing called Lunch with Jenny um, and I did it every week and I invited, say, a dozen colleagues to sit and have lunch with me and I asked the same three questions and because it's on the spot, I'm trying to remember them. I've not done it for three years. So I think one of the questions was, what can we do to make this a better place to work? Um, and, and the ideas always come from the colleagues. Mm-hmm. What can we do to make this a better place for children and our customers and customers being the parents as well? And then the third question, which always got a laugh was, do I ask you to do anything stupid? And what that means is in a highly regulated space, you've got all these rules that people have to sort of follow to make sure that we're doing everything that we should be doing. But you can sometimes write those rules in an ivory tower and not really understand the impact of them at the coalface. So I used to constantly listen Um, to the colleagues about what we could do to improve their working experience. And then at the end of every one of their meetings, we had like a massive private Facebook group. I'm sure things have moved on since now, but everybody was on it. And we'd say, these things came up in the meeting. This is what we're going to do about it. This is whose idea it was. Thanks very much. So people were getting the credit for the ideas. And sometimes if it was, that was a good idea, but we can't do it, I could go on and say, and this is why. So I think it was all about communication and being really, really clear that we wanted to be an amazing place to work. We wanted to create an environment where people could flourish and be amazing at their job. But we did that by listening and responding. And and one of our sort of mantras was getting better every day. And I don't mean those big, massive leaps where, you know, you wake up and you've done this big thing today that's improved the company. It was about every single day just ratcheting it up a little bit, just something that moved the company forward. So that when you look back a year later, it's like, wow, look how far we've come. And when you do that consistently for 18 years and that you're aspiring for excellence, not perfection, but excellence, and you've created a culture of no fear where if people make mistakes, they can hold their hands up and say, this happened today and you know, we can reflect and we can learn and we can share the learning. I just think we created a fabulous culture and um, that's how we got, you know, the reputation that we got. And one of those phrases that you used as well, which has kind of stuck with me as well, is excellence, not perfection. And I think that will strike true of a lot of entrepreneurs that Mm -hmm. you're, you know, you always kind of want it to be perfect, but realize that most of the time you'll never get anything shipped if you don't. So how did you demonstrate to people excellence? Well, I do think it's talking the talk and and walking the walk yourself. So, you know, excellence in things like the respectfulness that we had to the colleagues, how we spoke with the colleagues, 
being genuinely grateful, you know, genuinely saying thank you. So one of the things that I used to do is little handwritten notes to colleagues um, in a card that got posted to the house with a stamp. Um, So people were receiving things that meant something to them and they'd quite often post on the, you know, on either their public um, Instagrams and Facebooks or or the private group that that had happened. So people were, were seeing I suppose, excellence in their daily lives, but also, um, you know, having really high standards and holding people to account and holding myself to account for those high standards as well. But I do think that people really, well, the right people, if you get the right people in the business, which is what we did, we were, we were really careful about how we recruited and we recruited for what we called attitude rather than qualifications. So we were looking for the right people and then we could help them gain the qualifications through our training academy which is another thing that I did to improve qualifications and quality of colleagues was to take responsibility for training ourselves but those high expectations when you walked in one of our buildings it looked beautiful it smelt beautiful it was clean the toys and resources were you know beautiful as well and I think it was just that everybody understood that we wanted to be excellent. Everybody kind of bought into what excellence looked like. And then, you know, walking the floor. My manager's job every day was to walk the floor, not sit at your desk. You know, first thing in the morning, they would go and stand at the front door for the first hour and a half at least and welcome everybody through the door, colleagues, customers, children. Um, And I remember when I introduced that, go and stand at the front door for an hour and a half. They were like, and you just want me to stand there and say hello for an hour and a half. It's like, yes, that's literally what I want you to do. Because you can imagine what that does. It gets dialogue. It gets, you know, customers giving feedback. It's a brilliant way to to really get in touch with what's going on and then to walk the floor. And you were also talking beforehand, you were sharing a story about going to awards and hotels, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, for us... Um, We were delivering a five-star service and some of our colleagues had never experienced a five-star service themselves. So I remember um, there's all, all sectors have awards, don't they? And they're typically in London. So we had two or three different awards over the course of the year that we would often be shortlisted for, often won. And we'd always take a table of 10 and myself and my co-founder would host eight of the colleagues. And it was a real... um, you know, privileged to get picked out of the hat. We used to say, who wants to come? They'd put the names in the hat and we'd literally do a live draw and there'd be eight names come out. And we'd go and we'd do it all first class. You know, we'd travel first class on the train. We'd stay in a beautiful hotel. We really, really spoiled them so that they got to experience what five-star service looks like. And I remember being in the toilet once um, at one of these awards and I overheard another owner talking and she was in the fancy hotel and the colleagues that she brought were in the crappy hotel down the road and she was kind of laughing about it and I just thought it was vile I thought why do you think you deserve that and they deserve the other you know either go and stay at the crappy one yourself if you can't afford it or and and all be in it together or they come with you and I think when you have a values driven business and you genuinely have values yourself and you're living and breathing those values the colleagues recognize it and they see that, you know, it is different working there than it is working down the road. And we do look after colleagues and, and you know, create this environment that they want to be there. Does that make sense? Completely. And I think it's uh, so true. Why your passion comes for it so much and mm-hmm. you obviously awarded an MBE for it as well. How come you decided to sell? Do you know, 
If you'd have spoke to me, um, th- well, a week before the decision to sell, I'd have said I was never going to sell. I'd got myself a managing director in place. I was down to three days a week. But the issue with childcare for me is that I could never switch off. So, you know, I've already alluded to the fact that I probably have never had a good night's sleep in the 18 years that I ran the company. And I had um, a run-in with Ofsted, um, basically, the the... the They arrived at one of my sites. I was really unhappy with how we were treated and how they were talking to us. And I all of a sudden realized that everything that I had built was completely vulnerable to somebody walking through the door that had had a bad night's sleep and was in a bad mood and could come and mess with my business. And it it completely floored me. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I woke up the next day and I'm like, I'm done. I can't carry on living under this amount of pressure when actually some of that pressure is coming from a source that behaves in an unreasonable way and that there's no talking to and that there's no challenging. And I realized it was going to break me, if that makes sense. And I remember ringing um, my husband of the time and saying, I'm done. And he's like, what do you mean you're done? I was like, I'm selling. I'm not doing this anymore. And I think that was on a Wednesday. And by Friday, I'd provisionally put the... Um, company on notice to sell the business. And it was the right thing. And as much as the week before, if you'd have asked me, was I going to sell my business? I was like, nope, I'm going to, you know, keep running it in the background. I've got this amazing managing director and and it'll all be good and I'm not going anywhere. I just realized I was done and and I acted upon it rather than what I think a lot of people do when they realize they're done is they carry on and they make themselves ill and they have that professional burnout. And I'm really relieved I did it. And what I didn't realize was the the burden I was carrying on my shoulders until I no longer was. Mm-hmm. So I remember the day after I'd sold the business, waking up and not being responsible for 2,000 children and not being responsible for 500 colleagues and not having the threat of Ofsted and not having the threat of this, that, and the other, and just waking up and going, what, I can breathe. What, what did Ofsted do? They, well... They're just all powerful. Um, they can come into your bit. So, for example, they because I think people are quite used to it with teaching and and they understand yeah. that, but they don't yeah. probably get it with nurseries. Well, they just have all the same powers with nurseries. They have the the right to do um, a no notice inspection. What you have to realise at the time that this happened to us, we had all outstanding settings. We, for, from a quality point of view, we were independently recognised as being the best childcare provider in the UK. Um, you know, on a, on a list of, of providers, we were number one. And I guess you kind of feel sometimes you're, 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 your head's above the parapet, you're, you're number one, and you do begin to feel a little bit got at. And they had a complaint that we were what you call out of ratio during lunchtime. Now, what they could have done was come at lunchtime unannounced, walk the floor, count the kids, count the colleagues, and within half an hour, they'd have known that it wasn't true, that it was, you know, a malicious complaint, because that's, again, it does happen. There's a lot of malicious complaints go on in in um, childcare. So, yeah, they could have been done within half an hour. But instead, they arrived at the door at half seven in the morning to do a full inspection in a really grumpy, bad mood, looking for problems. And, and it was, you know, within 10 minutes of this woman walking through the door, you knew you were just in for a hell of a day. Um, and it was just that the unfairness of it all. And then at the end, we, we were downgraded from an outstanding to a good. Now, most people would be really happy with a good, but you can tell from me and my striving for excellence thing. I was like, what do you mean? And it was totally unjust, the reason that they'd done it. 
And there was no challenging them, no speaking to them, you know, no complaints process worth its salt. I think the complaints process that they have, there's like nobody gets anything changed. So what was it the was reason that, they, that just broke me. What was the reason they provided? Was it the staffing ratios or what? Oh, they don't, they don't give you any reasons. You know, you can challenge them, but you don't get Because I was like, why are you here? Why are you doing a full inspection? Why are you not doing what you're meant to do when you get a complaint, which is go and see if it's valid, go and walk the floor, fully appreciate it's important, you check it out. But it wasn't true, so you should have walked in, seen it wasn't true, and walked back out again. That's what they have the power to do, and rightly so, but that's not what they chose to do. And then within... Um, I've just remembered the rest of it, actually. So while they were there that day, they did an inspection at another setting the next day and one the next week as well. <laughs> now, the others retained their outstandings and it was all good. But what I'm saying is, can you imagine that level of pressure? When they turned up at the third one the next week, I honestly thought I was going to have a heart attack. I, I, I was beyond apoplectic, so, but I was also so stressed. So the, these inspections, because I think this would be really interesting for people. Well, I'm really interested in it. Um, <laughs> but why... So when do you get that notice of them coming in at 7.30 then? Uh, we didn't. We On that particular inspection, because it was what they call a complaint-led inspection, because they'd had that complaint that wasn't valid and wasn't upheld, they just turn up. Can you imagine pulling into, no. your, you know, pulling, God, pulling into your setting? The poor manager, because I, I wasn't there at half past seven, the manager opened up the building at half seven and that she was already stood at the door. Um. And I almost think that as well is just so unfriendly, you know, give give a half an hour. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like the bailiffs or turning up yeah. for illegal migrants type, you know, sort of breaking yeah. down the door type thing. God, blimey. It was really, really aggressive. And the poor manager rang me and went, Jenny, off today. And I was like, I'm on my way because I always went and supported and gave moral support. And, you know, it is what it is. But that ultimately did drive me out of the sector. I just felt that it, it was too much pressure, too much um broke me it's as simple as that but at least I had the sense to realize I was broken and I did something about it and, and it has been the best thing I've ever done and I was 48 when I sold the business and I thought I was going to retire um and apparently everybody that knew me was like yeah whatever you're not going to retire and a year into my retirement I came up with a new idea and like a fool I've gone again <laughs> exactly well this is what I wanted to come on to but it is uh, you know listening to your story and so on it, it's just such a shame for somebody um with uh two little ones and a third one on the way to kind of mm -hmm. hear that is uh mm -hmm. and hear that you leave the sector because of it is really heartbreaking mm -hmm. and that's part of the reason why we've got some of the challenges in, in child care that we do so uh, but yeah. i mean just yeah just today it's in the news that there are loads of child minders leaving the sector as well for similar yeah. reasons so it is a problem and i think ofsted at the moment are very much in the spotlight and, and rightly so i think things need to change of course we need to inspect settings and of course we need to inspect skills but i think something radically needs to change and i really hope it does but uh, as you say you've gone on to do it all again. So you've launched my first five years. Tell us about it. Yeah, so my first five years is sort of taking the knowledge of 20 years in the childcare sector. And what we're trying to do, well, not trying to do, what we are doing is giving parents access to expert information in a really timely manner as and when they need it to really help them help their children develop in the very best way. 
there's a, a massive recognition now that the first five years of a child's life are the, the kind of foundation for everything to follow. And we're really helping parents understand, but not in a judgy way, in a very realistic way, you know, because we, you know, myself and my co-founder, Alistair, he has three children, I have three children. So between us, we, we've done it <laughs> and we know that parenting is challenging. And what we're not trying to do is add anxiety. We're actually trying to take anxiety away by giving parents the knowledge we have as childcare professionals to really help them understand how to help their child develop and give them the very best start in life. And actually, it's really, really simple. When you break it down, it is very simple. Little things that you can do on a daily basis with things that are in your cupboards and things that are outside in nature that you can do with your youngest children to help them flourish. And some of the common misperceptions that parents have about how to do that that can often be quite damaging, we're trying to undo those myths and change the sort of generational you know, things that can repeat and repeat um, in families by giving parents this sort of expert in the pocket um, by with the app. So, so it's going really, really well. So what are some of the good hints and tips and tricks? And what are some of the bad ones as well? But let's focus on the good first, but give us some examples of it. Well, it's things like um, talking to your children right from the get-go, you know, right from being a baby and, and sort of doing a whole sort of serve and return thing. So Young, very young babies can babble back and it's sort of having a conversation with a babbling baby um, is really, really good for their language development, for example. So um, we're just giving those hints and tips to parents, little things like allowing slightly older children to get bored because then they'll use their own imagination about how to fill some of the boredom, not feeling that responsibility constantly to keep your children busy because actually that little bit of boredom is good for their creativity. Things like um, giving children a blank sheet of paper when they're that little bit older and they start mark making so that they can use their creativity to think about how a drawing might look rather than, you know, giving them something to colour in or something to to follow around. Um, there's loads of stuff on like Pinterest that you see parents like literally getting their children to, you know, make a bunny rabbit at Easter and making sure that everything's put in the right place. And they think it's creative, but actually the children are just following instructions. Mm. They're not actually using the creative brain. Whereas if you give them a blank sheet of paper and you give them a load of pom-poms and glue and glitter and paints and things and say what should we do today they're going to use their imagination and these are all really really important skills for the future um, parents often try to get children to write too soon so rather than focusing on writing focus on getting the hands strong so that when they're ready eventually to hold that pencil it's comfortable for them and letting them be creative about you know the things that they draw when their drawings get intricate so when they may be putting eyelashes on the face as opposed to just drawing a big circle, maybe that's the time to start introducing, should we write your name? Because they're more likely to be successful. If they can do little eyelashes, they can probably do a L or an I or whatever, you know, the letter is that they're trying to draw. And if they get success, they're more likely to be motivated to want to do it. Whereas if you introduce it too soon and it's too hard and it's not enjoyable, you're actually doing the reverse of what you're trying to do. So it's things like this that we're trying to share with parents. And they're all penny drop moments, aren't they? You're listening to any of what I've just said there and go, yeah, that makes sense. 
Toaster. It's not as if it's rocket science and it's not as if it's difficult to understand, but it's getting those messages out there. And, and we know how children best develop and it is through play and really encouraging parents to value play and see play as learning as opposed to play being the thing you do in between learning. <laughs> Um, these are some of the key messages that we're trying to help parents with. But it's also separating yourself out from it because it's often very easy to give advice to other parents and think how you would do it, et cetera. But when it's your own, you kind of sometimes can't see the wood for the trees, particularly if you haven't slept and all those inside <laughs> of things as well. So, yeah, but I, t- I, yeah. T- I totally agree. What are some of the... Um, what what are some of perhaps the common mistakes? I mean, you talk there about the, the handwriting, which is really mm-hmm. interesting. What what are the ones that are kind of out there? Well, I think what we are trying to do with the app is is really help parents stop comparing. So I think yeah. one of the biggest things that parents do is compare their child to the kid next door or to their brother or the sister or the cousin or whatever. And we call it comparanoia. This constant, you know, paranoia about how is your child comparing to other children. Um, And I think often um, parenting apps fuel this in a negative way. And it's something that we're changing because they do this thing called milestones. So most apps will say your 12 week old baby should be doing this, this and this. Your six month old child should be doing this, this and this. We don't do that in our app at all. What we do when you log on is we ask you some questions so that we figure out where your child is uniquely in their learning journey. So that becomes a starting point. And then we let parents know what's likely to be next so that they can start to look for it, start to spot the little things that they would probably never even know to look for and really start to see the learning and celebrate the learning. And it becomes much more celebratory and that feeling of momentum that, oh, they can do this this week. Oh, they can do that now. They can do this now. And tuning into their child as opposed to all the other children and giving that feeling of momentum and celebratory success is a much better way to go about helping your child develop. So I think the biggest mistake parents make is compare their child directly with other children instead of recognizing they are a unique person and they're going to learn in their own time and their own pace. How did you meet your co-founder, Alistair? Uh, Me and Alistair go back a long way, I think over a decade. So about halfway through my Kids Allowed journey, I, you know, again, was striving for excellence. And one of the things that I wanted to do was improve what's called our pedagogy, which is our approach to learning for children. So I sort of lifted my head up for a bit and looking out widely to see who I really felt got it and who would be an inspiration to the team to really help raise their game about the their understanding of children's development and I came across Alistair and I didn't realize at the time but he was really local he lived sort of 10 minutes away from the head office persuaded him to come and meet me and we just got on like a house on fire we laughed and laughed and laughed about you know he just had a way of sort of basically saying that's a bit crappy that Jenny but without saying it like that he he found a way to get me to look at stuff and laugh about it but also change it so I just found him a really inspirational character that he really knew his stuff, you know, had the academic rigor for what he was telling us, but did it in a way where you went on the journey with him rather than felt judged. Um, and I asked him to formally get involved in helping the training and development of the team at, at Kids Allowed, and he did. And we just really hit it off. And, and um, when I had the idea for my first five years, I knew that the only person I wanted to do that with was Alistair. 
and I picked up the phone. And because Alistair is so good at what he does, he was typically booked up sort of 18, 18 months to two years in advance. But because COVID had hit and most of what he used to do was face-to-face and in person, his diary was clear. And um, we often say that if I'd have picked up the phone at any other time, he'd have said, that sounds really interesting, Jenny, but I can't or I can't for two years. And he was able to say, let's do it. And um, he had to think about it. He chatted to his wife, Fee, and between them, they were like, yeah, this sounds like a journey we could go on. And, you know, he has been the co-founder from day one. And he brings, you know, I've got the business experience. I've got the passion, the vision, the values, all that good stuff. But he has the academic rigor that everything that we say in the app is absolutely bob on and that parents can trust it. Bob on. Great phrase. Bob on. Um, <laughs> um, and and what's, what's the business model for it? It's basically a subscription model. So uh, we sell direct to consumers. Um, a consumer downloads it from the App Store or the, uh, is it the Play Store? Mm-hmm. Um, and they pay a monthly subscription and they get to try it first. So there's like a 14-day free trial and they get to use the whole thing and see whether they get value from it. And if they do, they go ahead and they, they pay a monthly subscription. And the thing is, parents spend such a lot of money on toys that they don't need and, you know, things that they think are going to help the child develop and they really don't need it. And and at the moment, the subscription price for our app is $4.99. For $4.99 a month, we can tell you how to do it without all that stuff. Um, and you'll save yourself a fortune. You'll become more knowledgeable. You'll really get to tune into your child. And what we love to hear from our customers is it reduces anxiety. It reduces that parental anxiety because they know that they're doing the right stuff for the children. And it really is a, a, a great app. And how have you found it raising money as a second time entrepreneur? Second time around is easier because you've got a track record. So I guess, um, you know, the both businesses are based, the original business was based in Manchester. This one is as well. Manchester will often say it's a village. You know, it really is. Even though it's a big city, we all kind of know each other. So I've been around for 20 years, know many, many other founders, some of whom have gone on to exit businesses and do really well for themselves. So there was a network of people I could approach to get involved and and back the business. And I also put money into the business myself. So I think as a second time around founder, it was easier, but it isn't easy. You know, we're doing a crowdfunding at the moment and there's just always you know the need for the next lot of cash when you're doing this sort of business the the last business is completely different you sort of got one lot of funding and you opened a business and you filled it and it started to be profitable and then you'd open another and another and, and slowly but surely I grew that organically Whereas this is about spending a lot of money up front <laughs> to develop something exceptional and then a lot of money on marketing so that consumers get to hear about it. And it's a, just a very, very expensive startup phase. But once it gets going and once it tips into you know the right number of users, which we're not there yet, we're on the journey to get there. Um, but you've you know, got, it's a decent, got every opportunity. You've got a decent chunk Sorry. though, right? It's almost 6,000 downloads now, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we um, we launched um, the subscription model this year and we have over a thousand paying customers now. But, you know, we, we we want to have millions of customers internationally. We want to change the world with this app. And actually, we are also, um, I'm quite farther down the line, I won't name the charity, but we have a, a, a large uh, charity that focuses on children that we want to work with so people that can't afford the app can still get access to the app. 
Um, it's really, really important to us that money isn't a barrier. Yes, we need to charge for the app and it needs to be successful in its own right. But we want to make sure there is a way that those that can't afford the app can still get access to the app. So we're going to hopefully be partnering with a charity that will do that. And I'm thrilled about that because I want everybody to have it. That sounds exciting. Um, but also there's there's some other uh, sort of uh, lines in the business model as well, isn't there, in terms of you're going to be releasing toys and so forth? Yeah, well, the biggest um, one that we're excited about, because it's I think it launches in October from memory, is books. Mm. So we actually have signed um, a 15-book deal over um, five years. Um, and we've written three of them now, and the first one launches in October. And we've also uh, got a podcast. I think that's how we came across each other. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are lots Called of Called My First different... Five Years for people that want to go check it out. Yeah, please do. Thank you for saying that, Jimmy. Um, so, yeah, and also um, some um, toys, because, yes, we're not saying toys are, are bad, but what our toys do, are they're, they're what we call open-ended toys. So the toys where children use their imagination and they're really high quality as well so that they last and last. And what we hope is that, you know, when kids um, have children of their own, they might go to the attic and go, oh, I remember these and they're still in good working order and their children can play with them. So, um, yeah, we're really passionate about the whole ecosystem and, and giving parents access to information wherever they can find it. And we've got loads of free resources on all our social media platforms as well. So you don't have to by the app, but the app is the sort of pinnacle of the experience. We're just coming into the final couple of uh, questions. If you could <laughs> pass the mic to another female entrepreneur, who should we go out and have a conversation with? Who's doing some really interesting and cool things? Oh, well, just as an interested and cool woman, I would say Chrissy from Online for Babies. She is just a character. And when you hear her backstory and, and the struggles that she's had, yeah. personally, I just think the fact that she's running this amazing um, business is really inspiring. Um, I'm just going to have a quiet minute, Jimmy, just to think about some others. Yeah. I mean, there are loads of inspiring women, but I'm just trying to think. No, no, of course, would. but people are good. And anything Manchester-based is always interesting as well. And then the, yeah. the other question, just while you have a pause and think about it, yeah. through, is just if you could go back to the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey and tell yourself one thing or a couple of things, what would it be? Okay. Are you going to ask that question or was that you asking the question? I, I'm going to ask. Oh, I'll, well, yeah. I, I will yeah. ask it after you've done the other entrepreneur ones. Yeah. I think what I'd say Manchester is there's a massive ecosystem of female founders and we are all – chat it we, we're on a big whatsapp group actually we all support each other and chat to each other and pose our questions you know who do you talk to about this what, what do you do about this i think it's really interesting that as female founders we really support them and have each other's backs and i was chatting to a, a male founder a couple of months ago who was saying how lonely he found, finds it being at the top of the business and this loneliness is definitely a thing and, and it's something we all experience I was telling him about this um, WhatsApp group of female founders and how I just find it an amazing space to go and get, you know, help and support. I said, do guys not do this? And he's like, no. He said, I think we're too um, keen to show that everything's fine and there are no problems. And I don't think that that forum would work so well. I have no idea. I'm not a guy. I can't comment. But he said that to me. He felt that we're very vulnerable on that group, that that what's that WhatsApp group of female founders. We are really vulnerable, and he just doesn't think that that could work quite so well for men. Who knows? Think, I'm not one. I think there's probably some truth in that. 
And as a final yeah. question, if you could go back and tell yourself one thing at the start of your entrepreneurial journey, so getting off that train in London when you'd come up with a business <laughs> idea, the brand and so on, what would it be? Yeah. Um, a couple of things. Don't get perfection paralysis. You know, just get on with stuff and do it. Um, and I think that's one of the things I'm pretty pretty good at. I don't have perfection paralysis. If anything, I jump in with both feet and sort of figure it out as I'm going along. But I think what I'd have said to myself is stop spending money, Jenny, because I was earning a really good salary when I started. Um, well, I wasn't once I started Kids Allowed. I'd given up that really good salary, but I didn't change my lifestyle. I didn't change my spending habits and I got myself in a right financial pickle on credit cards, mm. keeping it up. Um, and I definitely would have said to myself, cut your cloth. You know, you're not earning any money right now. It took me 18 months before I drew a salary from Kids Allowed. That was painful. Um, and I would have said to myself, cut your cloth, wind your net back in on your spending and um, be a bit more sensible personally. Because actually when you get yourself in a bit of a personal mess with money, it does distract you from the business because you're kind of worried about it in the background. So um, that's definitely something I'd have and said to myself and I wish I'd listened to myself about. And it's often the thing that entrepreneurs think about last, right? Which is weird because we're... St- obviously quite focused on money the whole time but it is that what Mm -hmm. you pay yourself and how you do it is often kind of the thing that's at the very bottom of the list which is ridiculous on so many levels yeah it's always at the bottom of the list I didn't draw a salary for 18 months so when I did draw a salary it was half the salary I was on and I stayed on that lower salary for years you know, I'm not complaining because, you know, I've done very well and the, the business eventually, you know, did help me with my own personal financial security. But I think entrepreneurs often, I call it have your ass out the window. You know, you literally just, you don't look after yourself. You don't look after your financial well-being. You don't look after your mental well-being. You don't look after your body. It's all just a shambles, <laughs> personally. So true. Um, but eventually, as your business gets successful, that's what gives you the opportunity to put an infrastructure around you to, to help that. So, you know, as soon as I could afford it, I got a housekeeper at home because, you know, go doing a full day like I was doing with kids and then going home to a messy house was, you know, another tipping point for me. Mm. Um, but as soon as I could afford it, that was something I invested in. You know, as soon as the business could afford it, I got myself a PA in the business to help me keep myself organized and manage my diary and my admin. So eventually the business was able to put an infrastructure around me that let me focus a little bit more on myself and the work but yeah there's no doubt that um most most entrepreneurs that you meet have got many challenges going on um i think that's fair to say jenny thanks so much for coming on jimmy's jobs of the future it's definitely worth checking out the app if you've got kids my first five years and also the podcast i have listened to a lot of parenting podcasts and yours is probably the probably the best apart from my parenting hell obsession but um i think <laughs> that it is brilliant it's really practical but you and alistair have really good chemistry and it works really well in terms of practical tips so i find it really great thanks very much <laughs>